0: Hey everyone, welcome to this episode with Peter Adamson. Peter is a philosopher at the Ludwig Maximilian University of Munich. And he's also the host of the really popular podcast, History of Philosophy Without Any Gaps. I'm really sorry that during this episode, the video quality is pretty bad and that the camera flips back between me and Peter far too much. We had a slight issue with recording and unfortunately there was no way to remove this once the show had been shot. So sorry about this, but I hope you still enjoy. And if you do, please hit subscribe if you can. And yeah, thank you for watching. All right, Peter, thanks for joining me today. Thank you for having me. So Peter, I think you were were born and grew up in the the USA. Where exactly were you you born?
1: I always say that I'm from Boston, which is a lie, because I'm actually from the northern suburbs of Boston. I grew up in a town called Stoneham, which... Even people who know about the suburbs of Boston do not always know where Stoneham is. So I always say it's where the two interstate highways around near Boston intersect where 93 and 95 intersect. That's our claim to fame.
0: And I read online that I, I believe your, your mother was a doctor, your father was a mass prodigy, and your, your, your grandfather was one of the nation's leading jet engineers. So, I mean, I have to ask you, how did you end up going down the philosophy route and not kind of the more science science part? Good
1: research. That is all true about my, my parents and my grandfather. And actually, my other grandfather was an amateur historian who wrote an encyclopedia about forts in the United States. Um, so my twin brother and I went into the humanities more. Uh, we didn't really inherit my father's mathematical genius. We were always better with the language stuff. And actually, when I was in college at Williams College, I was at first, I was a literature major. So I was interested in literature because I liked writing and reading and so on. So I thought that meant I should be majoring in literature. But it's a liberal arts college, Williams. And I just took philosophy classes kind of for the heck of it to see whether I would like it. And basically, while I was doing my undergraduate degree, I became more and more interested in philosophy and less and less interested in literature and in the end I didn't even finish my literature major and I was a philosophy major a single major Um, and then I went to grad school in philosophy at Notre Dame
0: okay yeah so you I saw you you studied a philosophy degree at Williams College in Massachusetts what was that like and how did that kind of shape you for the later years when you went to do your PhD
1: Williams is a really small liberal arts school it's one of the top-level arts colleges in the United States. So I was really happy to get into that. Um, and it I mean, when I say small, it takes 500 students per year, or at least it did then. So that means that it's a four-year degree, right? So there are only 2,000 students at the whole place, right? And it's a very uh, kind of intense teaching-oriented student experience. So you get to know your professors pretty well. And the teaching quality was also very good. So I think one thing I took from it was that I already, I think especially like in the last couple of years I was there, I was already thinking, oh, maybe I'm going to go get a PhD. So maybe I'll be doing this for a living someday if everything works out. Maybe I'll be a university teacher or a college teacher. So I was already starting to think about how these instructors were going about their business and they were really good. So I um, was trying to pick up tips on how to teach from them already. So that was definitely one thing that it gave me. And the other thing is that since it's a liberal arts degree, you you don't just do your major like you would in the UK or in Germany, where I am now, you study across a wide range of topics, right? So I took classes in actually did take some mathematics classes after all. And I took classes in anthropology and sociology and history and obviously philosophy and literature and, um, History of science, even. So I think that might be one reason why I wound up having very broad interest in the history of philosophy, because I had been exposed to a whole bunch of different disciplines and I've always been interested in how these other disciplines, especially history, but also things like history of science, interact with the history of philosophy.
0: Yeah, as you said a minute ago, you then did a PhD at University of Notre Dame. What was your research on on that?
1: Yeah, by the way, it's pronounced because it's Americans, we say Notre Dame,
0: <laughs> Oh, Notre, Notre Dame. Okay, yes. Okay, Notre Dame. Yeah. Any
1: non-American who sees the title of that university will say Notre Dame. So that was very different because Notre Dame is a big university. Most Americans, the first thing that leaps to mind for them, and even maybe for a lot of Europeans, when they hear Notre Dame is football, not soccer, but you know, the kind of football you throw and where large men are hurting each other. So... I thought that was really fascinating as a kind of anthropological <laughs> experience going to the games, but that's obviously not why I went, right? So the reason I went was because I w- they are really strong in medieval philosophy. They're also just across the board, very strong in history of philosophy. And the, I mean, maybe here I need to take a step back and say that Williams College, as it happened, just had a very historically oriented department when I was there. So it was a pretty small department right small college there were six staff members whereas at notre dame there were i guess something like 30. and so of course at notre dame they were covering basically everything in philosophy that there is analytic philosophy continental philosophy all areas of history of philosophy um but from coming from williams i kind of thought of philosophy as just the history of philosophy like i sort of knew there were philosophers working now doing whatever they do But I hadn't really been exposed to much analytic philosophy other than, you know, the history of analytic philosophy like Frege and Russell and Wittgenstein. But I hadn't done any classes at Williams really on, like, philosophical debates that were going on at the time, which means, you know, in the 90s, which is what we're talking about here. So then when I got to Notre Dame, I obviously took courses on history of philosophy, especially in medieval, which is my area of concentration but I also took a lot of courses on analytic philosophy. So um, I kind of broadened my perspective about what the discipline is.
0: And after your PhD, you moved to King's College London. Before you became a professor, I think in about 2009, what, what were you working on in, in the period leading up to that? What was your, your focus?
1: So you mean between 2000 when I got to London and when I got promoted? That's right. So my Ph.D. was about the translation of Plotinus into Arabic, which is kind of a weird Ph.D. topic. One of the professors at Notre Dame said to me that with that topic, I was, and I quote, diving into the shallow end of the job pool. So like real niche topic. In fact, a lot of people don't even know who Plotinus is, never mind knowing about like the Arabic transmission. So Plotinus is the or was the founder of what's now called Neoplatonism. So he just thought of himself as a Platonist. And to make a long story short, what he was doing was using ideas from Aristotle and the Stoics to interpret Plato and kind of devise a new system based on the dialogues of Plato. So this comes from a tradition of thinking of Plato as a very doctrinal philosopher who has like very strong metaphysical and epistemological views as opposed to what a lot of people now think, which is that he's kind of trying out different ideas and exploring them without necessarily being too committed. So their Plato was very committed, very dogmatic in the sense of having uh, positive doctrines. And the works of Plotinus were then partially translated into Arabic in the ninth century. And that was done within a translation circle that was being run by this philosopher named Akindi who's usually thought of as being the first person to do philosophy in Arabic, or at least the first person to do philosophy that's inspired by Greek philosophy. So in in that decade, so like between 2000 and 2010 or so, basically what I was doing was first turning my PhD into a book. So that became this book on the Arabic Latinus. And then I thought the next logical step would be to work on al-Kindi. So I wrote a book about al and I also translated a lot of his or basically all of his philosophical works with a colleague of mine named Peter Porman, who's actually mostly a specialist in history of medicine, but he also is interested in philosophy. And so those two books came out um, around. And I guess that was sort of the basis for my application to be promoted to professor.
0: What is it about Plotinus and Neoplatonism that interests you so much? Well, I, I
1: mean, Part of it was just okay. that it was so obviously incredibly historically important. So the more I learned about late ancient and medieval philosophy, which is really the kind of time period I wanted to focus on, the more I realized that in a lot of ways it's just the history of Neoplatonism. So like, if you think about the whole history of philosophy, if if we leave aside like un- unrelated traditions like Greece and sorry, like uh, India and China, or you know. The aztecs and the mayans and so on so if we if we sort of ignore the fact that there were these other philosophical traditions for a moment and just think about philosophy coming from greece originally which obviously goes into the islamic world because of these translations that i was working on you can say that philosophy that comes from greece is beginning with the pre-socratics right like about half a millennium before the birth of christ and it goes till now right so that's about two and a half thousand years and neoplatonism is a dominant if not the dominant paradigm for doing philosophy for about a thousand of those years so um not quite half of the history of philosophy but going on half of the history of philosophy you have neoplatonism as a very strong kind of paradigm for doing uh philosophy in part because it was a very powerful system that integrated a lot of ideas from all the ancient philosophical schools so like i say platonism aristotelianism and Stoicism kind of combined into this very powerful fusion um the only ones who don't really get a look in are the skeptics and the epicureans because Plotinus thinks they're not interesting and he rejects them completely so that was one thing was the, the how historically influential it was also it's historically influential in different traditions so I was interested and still am interested in both latin and arabic philosophy and because of the translations you you have a reception of neoplatonism in in arabic as well as in latin and actually also in byzantine greek philosophy although that's not something i was thinking about at the time um and so it enables you to kind of look at medieval philosophy as this very broad cultural phenomenon um rather than you know, just thinking about it in terms of, let's say, like the scholastic reception of Aristotle, which is a lot of what people do when they do medieval philosophy. And then, so that that's like all about like why it's important historically, but also just intellectually, Neoplatonism from the viewpoint of a modern day philosopher can seem to be very weird, like is driven by a lot of strange intuitions. So uh, like a very simple, but very important example would be that Neoplatonists assume that one thing can have more being than another thing. So for example, my soul has more being than I than my body does, right? And you might almost be tempted to say that it exists more or something like that, although that sounds paradoxical, even more paradoxical, right? So if you can wrap your mind around what that would mean and then wrap your mind around the idea that these higher levels of reality are correlated with things like higher levels of unity, and truth and beauty, then you're sort of along the way to start thinking, starting to think like a Neoplatonist. And for most philosophers these days, it's not only that they don't share that intuition, but they probably wouldn't even understand what it is supposed to mean. Like what does it mean to say that my soul is more real than my body? I mean, things are either real or they're or they're not, right? Either they exist or they're not. And I, something that I thought was really fascinating about Neoplatonism is that not only are they driven by these intuitions, but they they these intuitions for them are so strong that they usually don't bother to argue for them. Right. So they so something that we think to be sort of obviously false, they think is so obviously true that they don't even need to justify it as kind of a background assumption. And this is something that's always interested me about the history of philosophy, the way that things go from seeming obvious to seeming false, right? Um, or the other way around, or even sometimes back and forth more than once. And so I I think that's a really uh, powerful thing about the history of philosophy, generally speaking, is that if you don't, if you only like look at contemporary philosophy, if you only look at what analytic philosophers are doing now, that's fine. But it might blind you to a lot of the assumptions that are being made in the background, because you don't know that in other times and places people we're proceeding from very different assumptions and very different intuitions. So this, in a way, opens up the opportunity to see philosophy from very different vantage points. Um, and Neoplatonism is a really good way to do that because Neoplatonism is very foreign to modern ways of thinking.
0: Can you give a couple of examples of things that you know philosophers took for granted and were very certain of in the past that you know now we, we think were. Or complete nonsense like like you said a minute ago um yeah what are some kind of major ideas that now the vast majority of people wouldn't accept
1: another one that i like is um the conception of knowledge that you find in aristotle and arguably also plato so obviously i mean of course everything about what they say about anything is controversial but i think it would be fair to say that it's what i what i'm about to go over is relatively uncontroversial So Aristotle and Plato assume that knowledge has to be absolutely certain, right? And that's not that surprising, right? So, I mean, even now, if you say, well, I know that my wife is in the next room, but I'm not sure (laughs) if she's there, that sounds kind of strange, right? So they assume that knowledge has to be absolutely certain, which is, you know, as I say, not too implausible. And then they say okay well what would it mean to have knowledge that's absolutely certain well aristotle would say it, a- among other things it means that you can only have knowledge of things that are themselves certainly true i.e necessarily true and things that are always true and things that are universally true so for example um for, he wouldn't think that my wife's being in the next room is an example of knowledge or at least he wouldn't think it's an example of episteme is the Greek word, right? So another way to think about this is that maybe we should translate episteme in a different way, like scientific understanding or something like that. But the point is that his epistemology is about this very kind of high degree, general, necessary kind of truth that in his whole epistemology and theory of science is geared towards explaining how it is that we can have knowledge like that and, and what it would consist in. So what that means is that a philosopher nowadays who's asked to give a kind of standard example of a bit of knowledge, I mean, the, the cliche would be the cat is on the mat, right? So I know the cat is on the mat because I'm looking at the cat sitting on the mat, right? And I think it's kind of amazing that Aristotle and I guess also Plato would say, well, that's not an example of knowledge, at least not in the strict and proper sense of knowledge. Like they wouldn't call that episteme. Um Plato has similar ideas in the Republic. So famously in the Republic and in other dialogues, he associates episteme with the forms and opinion. So the Greek word is doxa. So like mere belief or mere opinion. He associates that with things down here, so to speak in the physical realm. And again, you have this idea that knowledge is reserved for these very like almost otherworldly or, permanent features of the, of reality rather than being about kind of casual particular one-off things like the cat being on the mat. So obviously both Plato and Aristotle would still need to be able to say something about our grasping the fact that the cat is on the mat, but the point is that they're starting their epistemology from like a completely different place. So our epistemology is geared towards explaining these kind of everyday sort of mundane facts And their epistemology is geared towards explaining these really kind of highfalutin, ambitious truths about the nature of reality itself. So that would be another example.
0: That's interesting. I hope I pronounced this university correct, but I believe in 2012, you moved to the Ludwig Maximilian University of Munich. Is that right? Got that one right. Um, To become a professor of late ancient and Arabic philosophy. So what inspired you to move from, from London over to Munich?
1: yeah so that was um partially for family reasons or even mostly for family reasons so my wife is bavarian um and so moving from london to munich was attractive because it means we're closer to her family um i mean we were we were in london for 12 years our kids grew up there so it was a place we were very um you know settled in and i was also really close to my colleagues at king's um but it just seemed like a kind of amazing opportunity to come to a German university, you know, teach in German, live here. And, and like I say, we had this family connection. So that was the main reason. I mean, I, I really liked King's. so It wasn't like I was trying to leave or something. And in fact, I'm still connected to King's. So I have I do like um, some teaching for them and so on. So I've tried to stay uh, kind of, you know, I've tried to retain my link to the department as much as I could because I like my colleagues there so much um but uh once I got here I figured out that actually it would have kind of would have made sense to move for professional reasons too because being a German professor is a very sort of um powerful and exciting uh position to have so there's a lot of availability of resources and a lot of kind of autonomy and uh, a lot of freedom to, to sort of do whatever you want in terms of building up a research team and in um, and teaching and so on. So it's, it's, a, it's a really great system if you're a full professor. If you're not a full professor, it's not such a great system.
0: That's great. How do you enjoy living in Munich compared to London?
1: Yeah, I mean, actually, that was the other thing that I... I think I underestimated beforehand. So I think at some level, I realized that living in Munich might be more pleasant than living in London, but less exciting. And I think I underestimated how much stress I was going to be getting rid of merely by moving. Front. Because Munich is like this very well set up city. The public transport works excellently for the most part um it's also smaller so it's only like 1 million people instead of 8 million or whatever london is now so you know my commute is half as long to get into town um and it's just a very pleasant place so once i got here i realized that actually i had been quite stressed out in london just like from trying to move around london and you know having thousands of people sort of crushed into tube cars with me and so on and i i think i didn't really really realize how stressed out i was by that until i moved to munich and stopped being so stressed out Those was like the sort of weight fell off my shoulders so at least in that respect it was a, a really pleasant move i mean of course moving itself was stressful but once once we got past that
0: glad you're enjoying it now i thought it'd be good to move on now and ask you a bit about the podcast you run so you you run this really popular podcast i think you've had many millions of downloads uh, you've been doing it since 2010 it's called the history of philosophy without any gaps first of all, I thought I'd just say congratulations because I know you recently hit your 400th episode pretty recently. How did it feel to to reach that milestone? That's a a lot of episodes and a lot of years doing it.
1: Yeah, I mean, sometimes I think about the fact that if someone just sat down and started listening to my podcast without taking breaks, you know, like how long it would take them. And it's absurd. I mean, it would take weeks, right? (laughs) Especially because, so you're right that I just hit my 400th episode, but that's like the original podcast feed and there's a second feed which is where i do um coverage of not well philosophical traditions that aren't that don't have their roots in europe let's say so the original podcast feed did ancient and late ancient greek and roman philosophy and then it did philosophy in the islamic world and then latin medieval byzantine and now i'm doing renaissance and the reformation sort of around europe so in that Uh, series after 400 episodes I'm only in the middle of like the French Renaissance and Reformation so that's what I'm up to is basically the 16th century to the frustration of some listeners as you might imagine who are like can you please get to the 17th century right when it gets really exciting which I will eventually I hope but um, it's still going to take a while to deal with the 16th century so there's that whole story and then um, on another podcast feed I cover other traditions with co-authors. So I did Indian philosophy with Gennard and Ganeri. Now I'm doing Africana philosophy with Chika Jeffers. And in the future, I'm doing classical Chinese philosophy with Karen Lai. And I'm hoping to continue doing that. So maybe try to cover uh, philosophy in the Americas or maybe later Indian philosophy or later Chinese philosophy, maybe Korean and Japanese philosophy. So there's a lot of philosophical traditions, right? So I'd like to cover as many of them as I can. And I'll, my hope is to keep doing what I'm doing now Which is to alternate between the kind of original narrative where where i'm still going through european philosophy and these other narratives covering like other global traditions um so actually what that means is that if you put all the episodes together it's more like getting on towards 600 episodes because there's more than 100 africana episodes and there's 70 something indian ones so actually, it's 400 plus those. Those so It's like 580 or something like that.
0: Why did you decide to begin this project in the first place? Can you remember back to your initial motivations?
1: I can. Um, I mean, I sometimes wonder whether... You know, I, I was going to say I sometimes wonder whether if I went back to talk to my former self, whether I would tell myself to do it or not. <clears throat> actually, I would certainly say I should, that I would certainly tell my former self, go ahead and do it because it'll be great for the most part but I definitely underestimated it so I because I thought what I was doing was like I'd sit down for half an hour a week kind of bang out some notes about some topic in the history of philosophy record an episode and put it online and I thought if you know maybe if it goes really well like a thousand people might listen to it (laughs) right that was sort of like the, the utter limit of my expectations about what would happen and then It was just kind of a uh, classic case of mission creep where for one thing, because I had, I I always had this idea that it would try to cover the history of philosophy without leaving things out. So the slogan of the philosophy is history of philosophy without any gaps, right? And originally what I meant by that was without any like historical jumps. So instead of going from like Plato and Aristotle to let's say Augustine, and then Aquinas, and then Descartes, which is how people usually teach philosophy, I would go from Plato and Aristotle to Plato and Aristotle's students, and then I would do Hellenistic philosophy, and I would do late ancient philosophy, and it would be kind of a continuous narrative, sort of the way that you can do history as a continuous narrative, right? So when, you, like, when you're done with, I don't know, like the English Civil War in school, you then jump to World War I, right? The people who went through the english civil war like the next thing that happened was ever whatever the next thing that happened was like the refer the restoration right <laughs> and then on and on and on right and so i i think that's actually a very powerful way to think about the history of philosophy that there's philosophy going on all the time and that it's more like normal history so it just sort of evolves right and obviously there are just as there are major events in history there are major thinkers in the history of philosophy But also, just as you only understand the major events, if you know what else was going on in the lead up to the major events. So you only understand the major thinkers if you understand what was going on in the lead up to them. Like, okay, who was Kant reading? Who was he thinking about, right? And he's not directly only thinking about Hume and Descartes. He is thinking about Hume, but he's also thinking about a bunch of German guys you've never heard of, right? So that was the original idea. And I thought that at the beginning, I thought that would be pretty easy for me because I do ancient and medieval philosophy, you know, as my main areas of concentration. Uh, So I thought I could just kind of go on what I already knew to a large extent and maybe like occasionally read up a little bit. And you can tell that if you listen to the early episodes, like on the pre-Socratics and Plato and Aristotle. I mean, I'm not, I'm not too unhappy with them but they're definitely me like just telling you what i already knew about it right whereas since then i've tackled a lot of things that i didn't know anything about at all because eventually i just got far so i think the first thing at time it happened was when i started covering late ancient christian philosophy so i knew a good amount about augustine but i didn't know anything about like the greek church fathers for example so when i started covering them i just had to do a whole bunch of new reading that for the first time uh so it sort of became more like teaching something i'd never taught before i guess and now that's been going on for quite a long time so i covered a lot of medieval stuff that i hadn't covered before especially byzantine philosophy and now that i've been doing the 15th and 16th century stuff that's all been new to me pretty much uh, with a few small exceptions and then similarly because i was trying to live up to this slogan of like covering history of philosophy without any gaps i eventually decided that it wasn't Really sustainable to say I was doing that and ignore Indian and Chinese and African Africana philosophy and all these other traditions. So I started trying to do that as well, which has only been possible because I've been working together with experts, of course. Um, so that's so going back to your original question, what I orig- what I originally thought I was doing was much more modest than what I eventually have wound up doing. And in a way much more feasible so i mean if you think about it like what i'm doing now sort of sounds impossible and probably is right because i'll never cover all the philosophy that has ever been done anywhere you know and there are gaps in what i've done already so
0: like you said uh, a minute ago you initially hoped maybe you'd spend an hour or so a week doing this and it's, it's taking a lot more work i'm just a bit intrigued about your process so you know how long does it take you to prepare for each episode how do you prepare how do you record it and edit it can you give us any insight into that kind of process
1: sure um yeah so I, I mean <laughs> it's more time consuming now than it used to be the, oh by the way the other thing that I didn't mention is that it comes out as a series of books now and so now although I still think of myself as writing a podcast for sure like I I, I want it to be conversational in tone and like nice to listen to and not no jargon and so on um it, I'm simultaneously writing a draft of a book so there are footnotes and, you know, I'm, I'm quite worried about how it reads as well as how it would sound, right? Um, so that also is, is kind of up to the ante in, a bit in terms of like how much preparation I'm putting into it. Uh, but in any case, so what I do is, well, there's many steps, right? So the first step, I mean, assuming that we're like, we've already gotten as far as thinking, okay, now we need to cover Renaissance philosophy. So the first thing I would do is think about how that would be divided up. So Renaissance philosophy obviously happened all across Europe and it's hard to be everywhere at the same time. So what I've been doing um, really in a way ever since I split up medieval philosophy into the Islamic world, Latin Christendom and Byzantium, there's been a kind of geographical division where I'll do the same centuries in one place and then in another place, right? So like the medieval centuries in the Islamic world and then in Latin Christendom then in Byzantium. And similarly even within Renaissance Europe, first I did Italy, then I did Germany and the low countries and now I'm doing France and then I'm going to do Britain and then I'm going to do um the Iberian peninsula so Portugal and Spain. And then kind of come back to Italy to round things off at the end. So I'm kind of moving around the continent. So that was already, that already took a lot of thought, like how to sort of plan all that out. And then once you get as far as thinking, okay, you're going to do some episodes on Renaissance France, right? So when I first started looking into that, if you had asked me, okay, name a name a Renaissance French philosopher before the 17th century, like 15th and 16th century, I would have been like, uh, Montaigne, is he, he's 16th century, isn't he? And I would have been right about that. And then i would have been empty right that would have been my only idea (laughs) so obviously that's not good enough so i had to like go off and and read some stuff um so so there's various good places to start so for example the stanford encyclopedia online is good for some for, for most area areas of history of philosophy it's not that great on the renaissance and reformation period actually um and then there are like you know handbooks and guidebooks and overviews and so on which you can read so that is how i come up with an initial list of who i might cover or also topics to cover like um, for example the next episode i need to write for the renaissance france series is about ideas of religious toleration in france at the time so basically as a reaction to the protestant reformation right so in that case i'm not really covering a person or a text. I'm covering a whole bunch of texts that were responding to an issue. So sometimes they're about themes, sometimes they're about individual figures like Montaigne, right? Um, and then I take that list and I run it past some people who are actual experts and ask them what I missed or what I, you know, I ask them to criticize what I've come up with as a list. And people are always very generous about giving feedback on things like that. It's great. And then. So then I have my episode list and for each episode, I try to read, um, as much as I can. I mean, sometimes there's too much to read. Sometimes there's not enough, right? Um, it helps if the things I'm reading are available in English, obviously, (laughs) which isn't always the case. Uh, but I would say like on average, I might read something like two books and 10 articles for one topic. Um, maybe more or less depending on what the topic is and how much there is to read. I, and I think actually one thing that I've had to work on as it's, as I've been going along is sort of acquiring a good sense of when it's okay to stop reading and start writing. Because there's something like Machiavelli, for example. So you cannot, I cannot go off and read everything that's been written on Machiavelli. I can't even go off and read everything important that's been written about Machiavelli, right? Because it would take me months and months. And I've got on average like a week, right? <laughs> so Um, so I basically have to make, like read until I have a feeling that I could write a decent kind of overview. And, uh, you know, obviously you can sort of see what people in the literature are referring to in terms of other important books and sort of get a sense of what everyone thinks is worth reading. But anyway, that's, that's a big part of the process is reading and taking notes. Once I've got the notes, um, on everything I've read, I sit down and write the script, and I usually do that in one sitting if I can, and the scripts are around three and a half thousand words long, so I'm shooting for between 20 and 25 minutes, and then I sit down and record them. I have someone who helps me by with editing the episodes, which is great, and then it goes up every Sunday at four in the morning. But the, the idea there being I want I want to make sure everyone's got it but when they get up on Sunday morning in Europe and America, which is where most of my... Uh, listeners are.
0: What exactly do you enjoy about doing the podcast? Is it all you know, just the intellectual learning that you get to do yourself, or is it knowing that other people are learning stuff from it? You know, you're helping people to learn the stuff. Where do you kind of get the excitement to to keep going with it? From?
1: Yeah, I think the two main things are first what you just mentioned. So I'm I'm basically giving myself a self-imposed crash course on the entire history of philosophy, and so I'm learning a huge amount all the time. And of course i mean i hope people get a lot out of my podcast but inevitably i learn a lot more than they do right because they're listening to a 20-minute or 25-minute sound clip or you know audio file about the topic whereas i went off and did a whole bunch of reading and took notes and thought about it and wrote the script so it you know it obviously stick in my brain a lot better than it would in the listener's brain unless the listener has incredible powers of memory and I, i one reason i'm saying this is that i listen to a lot of podcasts about history and philosophy and other topics, uh, and so I know from experience that you know you're kind of even if you listen to a podcast with attention and you know you're enjoying it and everything, what you retain is kind of a vague sense of the shape of the story that was told, right? Like you you don't have exactly in your head all the details. And I mean, I definitely forget a lot of what I've learned for doing the podcast too, but I I think I probably retain more than I would just listening to the podcast. And then there's a lot of stuff that doesn't even make it into the podcast because it wouldn't all fit, right? So that's definitely a huge bonus is just learning so much about the history of philosophy. Um, And if you think about it, like if I keep doing this for another 20 years and kind of finish, whatever that would mean, like get up to the 20th century or something, then in theory i would kind of have learned about the whole history of philosophy which is not something that most people do so that's very exciting and i I genuinely enjoy that a lot uh also just learning how it all hangs together i find that sort of endlessly fascinating um so that's probably one of the two main things and the other main thing is yeah interacting with listeners and especially listeners who are not in academia So, you know, people like contact me via Twitter or you can leave comments on my podcast website. And so I get a lot of uh, feedback and questions and just discussion with people who aren't even, you know, have never studied philosophy, uh, who just listen to it in their spare time when they're driving or like doing the dishes. And I think the chance to like interact with people like that and talk about philosophy with people like that and teach them something about philosophy and maybe also learn something from them. Uh, the way they react to it that's something that most academics obviously don't get to do because most academics you know they're dealing with their colleagues and their students but even students are a pretty you know self-selected kind of elite group of people in a lot of cases especially at the places I've taught right because I taught at Notre Dame King's College London and the LMU in Munich these are all pretty hardcore institutions right so they have pretty hardcore philosophy students which is great but it means I'm not dealing with like the general public as it were. I'm dealing with a self-selected group of people who are really, really interested in philosophy and chose to study that when they could have studied anything else. So that's been really good. Yeah.
0: So you've become a bit of a kind of public philosopher, uh, you know, kind of getting the public engaged and and like you say, not just, you know, sticking to that community of, of academics, the kind of uh, elite group, is that something you've maybe thought you always wanted to do? kind of outreach to kind of more general public with podcast or some, something else?
1: Yeah, I mean, in this in a sense. So actually one reason I th- started doing the podcast is that I was talking to my brother, who I mentioned before, and he, like I said, he, he studied art history and he has always kind of had a foot in academia and he publishes books and articles and stuff like that. But on the other hand, he's never been a pure academic. So he's done a lot of museum creation and things he was even the director of a museum in New York for a while. So I was talking to him, I guess it would have been in 2009, about kind of the difference between his life and my life. And he, he basically said, he didn't put it this sort of rudely, but he basically said, well, you know, the stuff I'm doing when I curate an exhibit is reaching many, many thousands of people. Whereas you're basically writing research that is read by a few hundred people, and then you're teaching a few more hundred people. And he was saying this not to make me feel bad, but kind of to explain why he didn't want to be a pure academic, right? And so that kind of got me thinking that, uh, especially given that I've worked in the UK and Germany. I mean, I wasn't in Germany yet, but it's still true here. I've worked in systems that are funded by the government, right? So doing something that like has a further impact or outreach um, aspect to it, that, ki- that thought appealed to me, and it just so happened that I was listening to a lot of podcasts at the time already, um, which actually, in retrospect, were kind of a new phenomenon in 2009-10, right? So now they've kind of exploded since then. I didn't know at the time that it was something that was going to keep increasing, in fact, one of the things I worried about was that podcasts might just kind of go away within a couple of years after I started, and then I would have wasted all this time. But obviously, that didn't happen. So, yeah, so part of it is, um, yeah, just a kind of way of um, doing something that has a wider reach than my sort of specialized research. Although, I mean, I obviously keep doing specialized research, and I really like that. Um, and it's a big part of my life as well. Uh, so, I, in fact, I sort of see a symbiotic relationship between those two things. Like my research kind of feeds into the public project of the podcast and vice versa, to some extent.
0: And on this topic of public engagement, you know, I saw you gave a talk at Google, which is free for everyone to watch on YouTube. How, how did that come about? How did you get invited to to do that that talk on the philosophy of Islamic world?
1: That was a long time ago. Um So my memories are hazy, but I think what happened is that when my very short introduction to philosophy and Islamic world came out, there was someone at Google who was doing these events where um, they would basically just invite someone to talk about their new book. And that, you know, that very short introduction series from Oxford University Press is pretty high profile. So I I guess whoever it was just kind of came across the book and thought, oh, that's an interesting topic. So they just had me come down there and uh, like give a talk about it on stage. Um, So that's how that happened.
0: You said a bit about the podcast and where that's going in the future, you know, you're just going to kind of continue, but outside of that, maybe with your kind of more university research, like what what plans do you have for the future with everything?
1: Yeah, well, actually in a way, I'm um, the moment I'm in a period of transition where some big projects are ending. So I had this very big funding project or it's it's actually still going on for one year. It was a five-year project funded by the European Research Council on animals in philosophy of the Islamic world. So that's kind of slowly coming to an end, like we're already planning the final conference and everything. And simultaneously, I've had this other research project on uh, the reception of Avicenna in the 12th and 13th centuries in the Islamic East. So the idea here is to bring attention to this very large body of philosophical literature that was produced in what we would think of as like the early medieval period. And one way to think about it is that um, it's as if scholastic Latin philosophy had already happened once before, but in Persia and around Persia, like Central Asia, Iraq, that, that already had happened, but in Arabic and Persian, right? So it's a lot of the same topics. You know, everything from like proofs of the existence of soul to theories of physics, like, uh, you know, is void possible? What is time? Uh, stuff like that. Or, and also a lot of stuff in logic, epistemology. So basically across the board, all the things that Avicenna had done. And for that, we're churning out a series of source books, which translate texts from these sources and trying to present them and try to explain what's going on. In that uh, culture, philosophically, so that's really an attempt to put two big topics on the table for the rest of the research community. So on the one hand, um, philosophy about animals, and the other, on the other hand, the, this sort of several generation development of philosophers responding to Avicenna. So that's all really exciting, and I guess that like sort of working through the the products of those uh, two projects is going to take me several more years. But I do also want to, in the next few years, start working more on a group of philosophers who were mostly Christians who lived in Baghdad in the 10th century and who were like, kind of like professional Aristotelians. So they comment on Aristotle and argue with each other about Aristotle and so on. And so I'm hoping to do another project on them, on the so-called Baghdad school in the next few years. So that's the main stuff I've been doing. Um, I also just wrote another of those very short introductions um, devoted to Avicenna, actually Ibn Sina. So the title is Ibn Sina, a very short introduction.
0: Well, Peter, thanks so much for talking. It was great to hear about your life and a bit about your podcast and how that works. And yeah, best of luck with all the future episodes you've got coming up. look forward to it.
1: Thanks so much for having me on. I hope everyone appreciated my Arsenal poster.
0: Oh yeah, we'll make sure to keep that in and not crop that out.
1: Whatever Spurs fans are... (laughs) watching it's okay i forgive you spurs fans
0: thanks peter (laughs) bye thanks a lot i hope you enjoyed this conversation if you enjoy the human podcast please consider subscribing i hope to see you soon